Welcome to the McKinsey on Healthcare podcast. My name is Philippe Barboza, and I'm a senior partner at the McKinsey and Company offices in Houston. And I'm enormously privileged today to speak with Bill McKeon, the president and CEO of the Texas Medical Center. Good morning, Philippe. I would love to start the conversation with you letting our audience know a little bit about the Texas Medical Center and how you are transforming healthcare. Sure. Thank you, Philippe. So, What's unique about the Texas Medical Center is the name itself is actually quite misleading. When we all think of medical centers, almost every city around the world has a medical center. This is actually a medical city. It's comprised of over 60 institutions, 120,000 employees. And as you mentioned before, we provide care to over 10 million patients a year, each year on this main campus. The GDP for the Texas Medical Center is over $22 billion, which would make us the eighth largest business district in the United States. So it's unlike anything I've ever seen in my world travels, and certainly in the United States, this constellation of the largest collection of minds and resources anywhere in the world dedicated to advancing human care. So it is much more of a medical city than it is a medical center. And Texas Medical Center is the largest medical city in the world. How would you say it is helping to transform healthcare in the US? I think it has a long history of doing that through clinical. I remember when I used to run the program at Stanford University, and I looked at some of the volumes of the time of how many heart procedures were being done. And we were one of the largest heart programs in the country on the West Coast. And they were doing more heart procedures at the Texas Medical Center in a day than we were doing in several weeks. And so it really became a calling card for if you wanted to do um, some of the greatest, most innovative clinical work, you came to the Texas Medical Center because it had the volume. And a lot of times when you're looking at unique uh, cases, you have to have a large volume to be proficient at it. The Medical Center has drawn people here from all around the world for hearts, procedures in brains, cancer, number one cancer center in the world at MD Anderson. It's the largest children's hospital in the world with Texas Children's. Second part was, and what many people didn't realize is the research capabilities. More research is done on this campus than anywhere in the world. So people don't come here just to be clinicians. They come here to produce some breakthrough research. And so many of the, the research of many of the drugs that are discovered happen on this campus. Many of the, the surgical procedures that we've learned have been developed on this campus. So that's been really um, exciting for us. Bill, you joined the Texas Medical Center in 2013 when the TMC had a very different role with its member institutions. How would you describe the landscape you faced back then? When I came in and found the organization, the Texas Medical Center Corporation, which serves as the umbrella for this medical city, I saw that it was largely focused on infrastructure, physical infrastructure. So many of the things it touted when I arrived here, it had the largest parking operation in North America. It had the largest laundry, the largest chilled water and steam facility. It managed over 10 miles of streets and security across 1,400 acres. So in each one of those examples, it was always about physical infrastructure. Uh, and, and I thought there was so much of a greater opportunity for this organization to drive many of the programmatic opportunities across this medical center. Tell us a little bit about what you've achieved 
as an organization and then more importantly the vision and the plans for for the texas medical center which is so energizing i think the first achievement that we all accomplished was we really right-sized the organization and brought in a lot of partnerships and expertise we really thought unless we can be world class in what we're doing and operating um, we're going to bring partners in to help us do that. So that was the early couple of two or three years of my time here was really getting the operational machinery working well. And that grew our margins, which allowed us to invest into other areas. So one of the first areas that we focused on was innovation. And how do we really curate and accelerate companies in the Texas Medical Center? At the time when I arrived, it was done independently by each institution. So Baylor College of Medicine had their own plan. So did MD Anderson, UT, A&M. And it was a way to really incubate that centrally. And so we created an innovation institute. Uh, now we put about 250 companies through that each year two-thirds of those companies from around the world. So that was a really important start of showing that collaboratively, we could do things that really lifted all ships. And so now it's the largest in the country and it's only four or five years old. Clinical research was another huge opportunity. We conduct more clinical trials on this campus than anywhere in the United States, yet we do it independently. TMC has 32 IRBs or institutional review boards that help each institution conduct independent clinical research trials. And so now we're investing in putting artificial intelligence into each of those uh, institutions so we have a common tool set to actually look at patients across the 10 million patients rather than independently by each institution. Health data was huge, but that was a huge opportunity for us to really think about how do we really pull together the data and standardize it across the entire uh, platform, across the entire medical center, and really look at it. And it became kind of the true north for us during the COVID pandemic. So health data is a really important opportunity. It's becoming a real magnet for industry to work side by side with our leaders. Ultimately, the work you've been doing at the Texas Medical Center and the changes you've been making are driven by leadership. Can you tell us a little bit about your leadership journey? Sure. Um, uh, I, I think Robert Frost said it best when two roads diverged in the wood and I took the one less traveled and it has made all the difference. That certainly has been the case in my life. I've been very blessed with opportunities as being a CEO in Asia and Europe and the United States. And I think these journeys actually built on one another. As a matter of fact, when I look back, the most of my life, uh, professional life has been spent outside of the United States. And it's taught me a lot about leadership because what, what I've learned is your leadership style, what works in the United States doesn't work in China or London. And while the basic principles that we think about in leadership, work ethic, in-depth analysis of a business, understanding, uh, value proposition, product differentiation, those are solid fundamentals. Those work in all business scenarios. But actually understanding what motivates people is very different in different parts of the world. Let me give you a couple examples. When we think about young companies and startups, and I've worked in major corporations as well as startups, so in the United States, stock options is everything. People will take very low salaries to get stock options with the hope that the company flips and those stock options are worth, in many cases, millions. 
what I found in the UK uh, when we had stock options, it was really interesting. I had employees coming to me asking to trade stock options for more vacation time. And it really struck me because that would have never happened in the United States. But in the UK, vacation time was really important to people, so important. And when I talked about the numbers of how many millions they, they could be passing on, it really didn't resonate. Um, in Stockholm, for example, what was really important to them was title. So if you offered to give someone a raise of twenty or $30,000, they were much more interested in how their title would change. And when you understand kind of in a country, a socialist country where most of the income is taxed and, and uh, many things are provided for, that the pecking order of titles was much more important. So what I've learned is not to assume anything, that if you don't really cut to the real hopes and desires and dreams of the people, uh, that you really can't lead them because those things are so important on how they resonate and how they're motivated. So that's been one of the things that I've really kind of looked back on on that journey. You always want to hire incredibly talented people. And that's something that I've invested heavily in. When I arrived here, it was largely male dominated, older, uh, older people in uh, leadership positions. And now I'd say it's almost been a complete swing opposite of that, that 80% of the leaders on my team are women. Uh, uh, ages are much younger. Um, and it wasn't designed that way. You know, you hire the best people for the role. But what I find is I try to hire people that actually like agility. We don't use the word department in this company. It's really functions. And that slight change is moving people out of this kind of, I own this part or I do this thing to be much more agile in their thinking of the roles they have. So you'll see most people in our organization cross over onto many projects so they don't get stuck in something. The dust factor, as I refer to it, doesn't build. So that's what I think I'm most proud of is hiring a, a real a great group of people that are leaders in themselves and, and they're growing and uh, many times don't know even how smart and, and creative they are. And that's kind of one of the, the, I think, the greatest pleasures of leading is really hiring people and curating our future leaders here at the medical center. When you reflect back on your career, what is the one piece of advice that you would give to some of the global leaders that are listening here? It, it probably is not what you'd expect in my answer, because what I've learned is leaders get caught up with the fact of thinking about themselves as executives. And the more that you can take yourself down into the bowels of each organization and really walk it and see it, uh, to see how people deliver a service, to see how they answer phones, the most important people in the organization are the ones that have the most touch points with customers. And you've probably heard this many times before, but if those people aren't extremely uh, valued as they should be in an organization and the culture doesn't reinforce that, then you're missing the very greatest opportunity in a company. Setting a culture really starts at the top and the way in which you treat people, the way in which you're curious and talk to them about their jobs. You can't do that from an executive office. You've got to be able to walk through and touch points of all throughout the organization. And I often think CEOs 
try to behave like CEOs and think those things are above them and just the opposite. I think it's the most uh, important thing that a CEO does is touch everyone on the front lines to really kind of understand how they see the world, how they see the culture of the company and really building up from that base because that's when you really learn about the business. And I find too often CEOs put too many layers between them and the front lines of delivering a service or a product, and they lose really the beauty of the organization. And so uh, that's my advice to CEOs is de-layer as much as you possibly can, get as close to the front lines of business, and make sure the people there on those front lines are treated as well as any other person in an executive suite. And they will know a culture, you can't fake it, it's not something that you put on the wall in a coffee room. It's what you live every day. And so how you conduct yourself and how you treat uh, people that would consider themselves on the lowest levels are certainly not the lowest level of importance. They should be almost in an inverse relationship to those people on the front lines. And that's where you build a culture. Um, and it's got to be something that's inclusive of all people in the company. And it takes time. And it also means people that are not part of that culture that pride themselves on getting on top of one another by stepping across people and not through teamwork. It's just as important as removing those people from the organization. So it comes down to the, the culture and how to build a great company. If you don't have a great culture, that company will never perform admirably. Maybe pivoting the conversation a little bit now and getting on to COVID and the devastating virus. I'm personally so proud of what you and the TMC Institute CEOs have done for this region. In particular, how this group of leaders came together so quickly and created a fantastic and coordinated clinical response that quickly became one of the best sources of decision data in the country. Let's go back to February 2020, when this is all breaking, and walk me through how this diverse group of healthcare and local leaders was formed. Yeah, it was um, it was an interesting time in, in history, uh, and little did we know then what we know now. In February of 2020, we knew the virus was in Wuhan, China. It was only realistic that this would eventually come to the United States, and so we didn't waste any time. We called a meeting of the top CEOs of the medical center. The mayor came, and so I hosted it in our boardroom. And it was really clear then that we didn't have any time to waste in preparation. And what's unique is, remember, these are the top CEOs in healthcare anywhere. And they're used to managing enormous institutions in their own right. But their very nature, uh, their roles were independent from one another. So uh, there was no construct for us to come together and really work as one a unified organization on, on a pr process like this. Maybe during a flood, Harvey is an example where we'd come together, but this pandemic was a very different, you know, floods come and go in weeks. And a pandemic, as you see, we're now a year and a half into it and still very much uh, in the thick of it here. Things are getting better. But I remember at that time hosting them and saying, we need to come together on the knowledge of this virus at the time it was only one um, and um, how we're going to handle it. We have to come together on supply chain. We've got to pull our data together to establish a, a mechanism in which we could collect and standardize the data and do it on a day by day basis. And this was key to us because 
if you remember in the reports for many months after this, was that the United States was not prepared for this at all. And they weren't prepared from a testing standpoint. Vaccines were far off in, into the future. Supply chain was non-existent. So now everyone was on their own to try to negotiate. I know this now because of these meetings went seven days a week with the CEOs, 7 a.m., seven days a week. Uh, and then it actually led to even a secondary meeting of all the top leadership from the city of Houston and the county uh, and, and TMC at eight o'clock. So we did this every day, seven days a week. And the data was collected in real time. And unlike other data sources around states trying to roll up state data, they weren't realizing the effect of this virus and the presence of it uh, on a day-by-day basis. They were looking at it sometimes four to six weeks uh, behind on the data which really made it impossible to make daily decisions on it. So we became the true north relative to data and understanding it. And we published and circulated it and were being demanded. So we circulated to the governor, to the mayor, to the county judges, um, to the public. I remember every night we would get the last piece of data about 2 a.m. I'd send it around about 3 a.m. people uh, would read it first thing in the morning and we would have our meeting at 7 and make strategic decisions. One hospital would be out of supplies and we'd shift supplies from one from another. Or I'd be writing a check for several million dollars to purchase uh, more supplies from around the world. And it became um, uh, one of our greatest moments, I would say, in our history coming together because none of us could have done this by ourselves. And we needed to pull together as a collective entity to really look at this and make decisions Um, And we were looked upon by our community as kind of giving them the real up-to-date daily uh, view on uh, the presence of this virus through uh, the early days, through testing. Uh, We we looked at the prevalence. We we even have wastewater management sites, 39 of them, around the city where we actually test wastewater and we can tell you the presence of the virus or how many now multiple viruses in our community. So it was um, it was a moment in time and now has been a year and a half of time where we've dedicated huge amount of resources. And I don't see any end of it for some time, sadly, because of the resistance of many not to get vaccinated. So we still have this presence in our community and will for some time. But the fight goes on. And uh, but it, it's been a very proud moment in history for the Texas Medical Center. Yes, it was an amazing collaboration between healthcare, local government, academia, the Greater Houston Partnership and business in one of the most diverse cities in the country, if not the most diverse big city. Social capital is such an important concept in leadership. What would you say is one of the key learnings that you gained from this pandemic about the value of social capital? Yeah, well, you know, when I think at the heart of social capital are those links and shared values and understanding that enable people to trust one another. And that's the cornerstone in which you do work together. And that really uh, took uh, for us, because remember, each of these institutions worked independent from one another. They don't share data with one another. And so that was a real big accomplishment for us to allow them to give the data to the Texas Medical Center at the time. And that trust 
really uh, opened the door for many other opportunities of understanding and that really built the trust with each other because with all of us sharing our data in real time and knowing um, how things were happening, people really didn't understand the depth of this problem. And so I think what it allowed us to do when each of those institutions trusted themselves enough to give the data to us centrally and to see the benefits of it, that was really set a whole new tone in how we work together. A lot of people forget during this pandemic that our hospitals are usually at 80, 90% for just the normal uh, challenges disease brings on in our community. And people travel from around the world to come here for that care. And so uh, we had that on top of a pandemic. And so uh, one of the things about social capital is once we established that trust baseline to really work with each other, it was amazing to see how we would set up our testing. We would really talk collectively about how can we set up the testing because remember it was first mandated to come in to our hospitals who are already taxed with not only providing care for non-COVID, but now COVID patients. And now we became the cornerstone for testing in the entire country. And it was really the great efforts and investments made by Baylor College of Medicine and University of Texas and uh, Houston Methodist that really gave us a testing capacity. So we knew in real time how many people were coming in that had COVID. While back in the day, uh, and that's only a year ago, we'd wait for those tests to go to Washington and come back six weeks later. And so we had to have the real-time intelligence to know where this virus was, uh, the presence of it in various communities. And so now we've really shifted knowing where those hotspots are. We've shifted our mobile units to where we deliver vaccine. We test heavier in certain areas because we know the virus presence is greater. So it's really all of those tools uh, that we've put together and shared with one another that's been all the difference in the success of, of us battling this, this pandemic. Looking to the future, Bill, what are you building here? What is your vision for the Texas Medical Center over the next 10 years? If I try to synthesize it into a statement, I think that what we're creating here is the most efficient, comprehensive ecosystem to translate discovery into advancing human care. Now, that's quite a statement. But we already had the largest set of minds here that are researching advancements in care and also practicing them every day. Uh, but what we didn't have is all the pieces together, which is we have clinical, we have research, we didn't really have the investments here, we didn't have industry here, and we also didn't have manufacture here. And so those three areas are what we're putting really our full court press, if you will, on this, that we're really putting all of our investments into building out this new TMC3 campus, this 40-acre campus, and it's already underway. So every day I'm watching cranes go up and buildings come up. So that's very exciting. Uh, we have all of our, our industry uh, uh, leaders in research here on this campus that are actually designing their labs together, which is really exciting rather than independent from one another. We've got industry, we're building buildings for industry to be side by side by our researchers. So that's terribly exciting. We have huge investment coming in from industry. We're building out an entire park system. There's six parks in the middle, each one larger than a football pitch. Um, and so greening of our new campus is really exciting and a really important part, equally as important as the labs we build. 
And we're building a manufacturing campus that will be able to house all of the things that we've needed in this pandemic. So we don't have to look back in future times and and look to our reliance on other countries that are obviously taking care of their own. We want to have that capability within the United States, and we want to have it here in mid-country, as we call it, in Texas. So perfectly located to do supply chain to both uh, East and West Coast. So those are big, audacious Texas goals, uh, but they're ones that were already uh, underway. So we're not waiting. Uh, we believe in our ability to execute on these. And we have the entire medical center arm in arm together on this vision. So it's not my vision alone. It's really a shared collective vision across the entire Texas Medical Center. Thank you, Bill. And I can't thank you enough for taking the time to have this discussion with us. As always, it's inspiring and informative. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I'd also like to thank our audience for listening to the podcast. I took a, a few just important takeaways from the conversation. The first one is just the importance of visionary leadership and, and courage to make a difference. You know, how Texas Medical Center pivoted from an organization that just provided physical infrastructure, parking, catering to all these world-class medical institutions to becoming a partner that has a vision to help really drive healthcare across this region and nationally and globally. Very exciting vision, uh, one about entrepreneurship and courage. I also took away the importance of social capital and how when you establish trust amongst people, in this case, COVID helped create, you know, real trust, you're able to achieve miracles and how all these institutions and the city, you know, business, academia, local government came together uh, was really a benchmark, I think, for the USA and, and, and globally, as we think about all these important problems and challenges that we're wrestling with as a society. I'm also very inspired about the future of healthcare, everything from AI to accelerated clinical trials to driving innovations that exist in someone's mind or lab one day through to you know millions and billions of patients uh, a little bit later. And I really take a lot of hope on how we as society are, are starting to accelerate our response to so many of these healthcare challenges through innovation.